God. Hallelujah. All right, come on in. We got praise and worship. We got teaching. All right, you want to pray? Yes. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much just for loving us, just, just for loving us even just the way we are. And you are so awesome and so good. You are faithful and true. You, you make a way for us and you, you just, you give us everything we need, enough to eat, <clears throat> enough to, everything we need. And we praise you, we thank you for your goodness and your love. And Father God, we thank you most of all for your son Jesus Christ who paid the price for us so that we could be your children. We, we love you back. We say that we want to put you first in our lives. Uh, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. All right, so, so last week I told you that um, when, I, when I was sharing on Jesus the Same, that the original title was Consuming Grace, because I thought I could like actually get through four verses in one teaching. Silly me. So um, I think I can get through two. And, and we're going to go for it. So this is Consuming Grace, Hebrews 13, verses 9 and 10. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This use of tent... Um, understand that the temple and the, the entire temple system was standing when this epistle was written. So this use of, of tent is figurative to refer to the entire Mosaic system and the whole Levitical system. Okay? So here's an overview of these two simple verses. Don't be led astray. Be strengthened by grace. We have an altar from which to eat. That's all good news, right? Mm -hmm. It's an eating thing. It's an eating thing. <laughs> so, do not be led astray. The epistle's continual call has been to enter in. You know, come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy in time. Throne of mercy to find help in time. To you, you know the words. <laughs> Hebrews 4.16, I just, I just slaughtered it. <laughs> Hebrews 10.19 and 20, that we can come in to the holiest of all. That's been the entire invitation of this epistle, is to come in, to come in, to come in. And now we're in the closing words of this letter, and the writer says, don't be led astray. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Who's the head of the body of Christ? Jesus Christ. Jesus. So, you think Jesus has a plan for his body not to be led astray? Yes. Yeah. So we 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 talk about uh, what do we talk about? We talk about getting led astray. We talk about what? Oh, pull over your eyes. Pull over your eyes. Um, Jesus is the head of the body, and he has a plan for us not to be led astray. We have a tendency to say. Perspective is everything. But what we really mean when we say that perspective is everything is, is that how I view things is defines the world for me. 
And what happens in churches, what happens in bodies, what happens in denominations, is that it becomes dominated by a particular perspective. And axiomatically becomes unbalanced. It's the nature of it. It's the nature of how we organize and have organized church for 1,500 years plus. Um, in modern evangelical churches, we have a role, and it's called the lead pastor. And I don't care if it's Baptist, Methodist, Independent, Charismatic, what your flavor is, the lead pastor sets the vision for the house. The problem is that the lead pastor has a perspective. And his perspective isn't wrong, it's just incomplete. And so, in, in this um, expression of our faith, the encouragement is that as the body comes together, everybody has a saying, everybody has a song, everybody has a psalm. That it is a dialogue by which we gain Christ's perspective and we're each playing our role, not inadvertently dominating the vision. And by the way, my experience in more than one church has been that an elder-led church does not either suffice. My point is, it doesn't work any better if you have, instead of one guy, you have maybe a group of guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that doesn't work much better. The only thing that works is if the church holds Christ as head. That's what works. Nobody else is qualified to run the church. Now, we each have our roles. We each have our functions. So this is not a, a call to disorder. It's not a call to a lack of authority. It's not this flattening down to a horizontal line in a family structure that, that has younger, younger siblings, older siblings, parents, um, all these kinds of things, right? So this is what Jesus did shortly after he left the planet. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Jesus gave five primary ministries to the body of Christ to bring the full... Five is the biblical number for grace? to bring the full counsel of God with regard to the grace and truth that came in Jesus. And that perspective comes from the Apostle. Now, in modern parlance, the Apostle is the supreme executive of a major ministry. That's how we have defined in the Pentecostal charismatic movement the apostolic role. Um, the apostolic role has been defined that way by the Roman Catholic Church for, mo for, mo for nearly two millennia in that they, they view themselves as, as the apostolic um, direct in line authority of Peter. And many evangelicals say there is no such thing as an apostle and yet begin to lay on these corporate roles just like churches who embrace apostolism don't embrace so much the ones that say, you know, we're persecuted across the planet, we're the off-scouring of the world, we have no place to live, we're poor, we just go where God tells us to go. You're the kings, we serve you. The apostolic 
looks more like April. The apostolic is that called individual that's sent out by a body that broadcasts and establishes the ministry of Christ in an area. And if you have a, an established church from which no one is departing and no one's going, you're lacking an apostolic view. You're lacking an apostolic unction. Another fancy word for anointing. Okay? Teachers. So this congregation is saddled with the challenge, and it's a challenge. I, I, just, want, I just want you to know. <laughs> you are saddled with the challenge uh, of having as a prime minister, not a prime minister, but somebody who continually ministers, and has the motivational gift. In other words, when Christ came to live in my heart, He super-energized how He formed me in my mother's womb. And how He formed me in my mother's womb and what He super-energized with His recreated spirit within me was the heart of the teacher. That's what He reproduced of Himself in me. And then He said, oh hey, and by the way, you get to be a teacher to the body of Christ. So you get a double whammy. I'm not a prophetic teacher. I'm not an encouraging teacher. I'm not a pastoral teacher. I'm a teacher-teacher. Okay, so uh, just as an illustration um, uh, of how this, I've had strong words from apostles with regard to um, going beyond in my teaching ministry. First and foremost, from the apostle Jesus, though it, he'd said it before, but I hadn't heard it. I heard it from, from mentors of mine who expressed to me the danger that I can pose to people I'm endeavoring to minister to and to myself. At one point in time, I was teaching, and not having the sensitivity of Paul, who said, I, I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and Him crucified, because you're just not ready for the rest of it. I was just going. And Jesus says, stop endangering my people. Because the minute I say it, we're all responsible for it. Mm -hmm. See? So, I've, ne I've needed and sought prophets in my life, apostles in my life to, to help temper that. But if your voice isn't heard in this congregation, you're complicit in my abuse. Because <laughs> if you give me a stage, I'll fill it. Yeah. I'm designed to be a trumpet. It's who I am. And I'm not opposed to getting out of the way, but if someone doesn't fill the silence, I, I you know, it's just what I'm built for. Understand? Just endeavoring to be transparent. Well, that that's one of the reasons we. Um, I I I love this church because we're not limited to just sitting in a chair and listening to a teacher. Uh, we're encouraged here to to um, make comments, to ask questions, Amen. to to um, you know, and whatever's in your heart to say. And and um, when that happens, generally the meeting is a lot better here. Hallelujah. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that just just, just to no. put down your teaching. No, but your that's, teaching that's the is truth wonderful. Of it. It, but uh, but it gives it, it 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 makes it it makes it so that um, it's real. I guess it's yeah. connected. Yes. Amen. Mm -hmm.
I, I think many times it's not about what I'm going to say, but you know what the Lord gives me to say isn't so much about what I'm going to say, but what it's going to encourage, what's going to encourage you to say. <laughs> the, the things that's going to bring up in your heart that Jesus, Jesus needs to be expressed in that perspective. Okay? Because like everybody else, our perspective, our perspective is limited. One of the things that I that used to happen in this church that hasn't happened so much anymore is somebody would bring something up and it would uh, uh, there would be a rabbit trail mm -hmm. and you would pursue that rabbit trail and that was always good. It, it, I mean, um, and but I haven't noticed it so much lately. I, I love hunting rabbits. Someone's just got to set one to run it. <laughs> <laughs> So, this is a great time to make an announcement. We're almost, it's like two years and change we've been in the book of Hebrews. We were joking about that. But um, I am endeavoring to, Lord willing, finish this up before New Year because Stephen Brown's going to begin teaching on the Ecclesia. Oh, wow. So I'm really excited about that. I didn't, I didn't ask him about the announcement, but we had conversations and I was getting the sense he was ready to go. So, I'm excited about it. He's he's been uh, chewing on this transformative message for some time now, and, and so how do we get him to raise his voice? <laughs> Mark, pra Mark, practice, Mark. practice makes perfect. So what so what God did to me to make me loud is He made me last in a group of, of very gregarious people. I'm the youngest of seven. Ooh. And neither my mother nor father were quiet, and any crowd they had around them wasn't quiet. So to be heard, you just had to get loud. Um, all right. And he gave us apostles, and the prophets, and the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers. And you can see in any of these, uh, if these components are missing from the body, the body is ailing. This is, this is how um, parachurch ministries develop, and this is why church bodies need to be in contact with the greater body of Christ for these, for these giftings to flow. Um, you know, if, if other teachers or, or other ministers come in, or whatever points that you bring in as the Spirit is working, it brings these kinds of balances in their own way. So I'm not going to go into full teaching about what these different ministries are, except that I want to highlight what his purpose is. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The, the apostles' role isn't simply to be sent and, and establish these new congregations and establish these new outreaches. The apostles' role is to, is to demonstrate, be an example for you, and to train us how to be responsive to the call of the Spirit when he says, hey, you need to go over there. You need to start establishing that work. You need to start doing this thing. The role of the prophet isn't to come in and tell everybody what they already knew and weren't talking about. Isn't so much to just point out everyone's sin and tell them to repent. Uh, by the way, the, the greatest demarcation of the, of the prophetic ministry, which I think is, is highly missed, is that it's an encouraging ministry. It is an encouraging ministry, both Old and New Testament. Its primary function is to encourage people in the work of the Lord. Right? It's not to browbeat and make things black and white. There already are. You can't make things black and white. You can just make people see it better. Right? 
But as the point of these ministries is to bring the entire body up to the maturity of that full expression of grace in Christ Jesus. That's the point. It's not, well, we'll bring the pastor in to pastor, and we'll bring the teacher in to teach. We'll bring the, you know. The, no, these people are here so that we may all learn to do it. Right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry... For the building up of the body of Christ, to build the body. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It's good for the heart to be established by grace. It's good for the heart to be built by grace. These are all the same idea, same Greek behind the thought. Can I interject something? Absolutely. I know this is you're not intentional, but you, it's just such a great road here. And you've mentioned apostles, prophets, and teachers, um, but I, and, and I know you'll agree with me when I say, but just as important are the other motivational gifts. There are people, there are people in this congregation who serve as servants. There are people who, who have tender hearts and who comfort others when others are having a hard time. There are, there are people who um, have gifts of mercy. There are people who... Um, who, you know, there are peppered, there are, there are exhorters, there are, you know, encouragers. Amen. And then there are people who very quietly just give and keep things going financially. So there's, there, those other gifts too, even though maybe they're not center stage, are just so important. And I absolutely agree with you. You've got to have all of those mm -hmm. things at work uh, to have. A and I think we have that here. I think that's why this works so well. But anyway, just one minute. No, everybody that. gets recognized. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, until we all, this is verse thirteen, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See that you don't get pulled away, led astray, by different and strange teachings. This is the purpose of having the fivefold ministry, to establish you in the faith, so something that is um, over-perspectivized, right? Twisted. Yeah, um, where, you know, everything in ministry must be spiritual warfare, or everything in ministry must be deliverance ministry, or everything in ministry must be the orphans, or everything in ministry must be the widows, or everything in ministry must be teaching, or, and on and on it goes, because, because someone took the ball and ran with it, and then that became, if people do not get a um, balanced diet, a building, it becomes their their measure and all perspective of what the faith is, and it's limited. And I think, unfortunately, it actually becomes, I don't think people always intend it, but it becomes branding. It, that's mm -hmm. what's happening. You know, a church wants to brand itself and represent itself a certain way, and what it does is it limits itself to that narrow Absolutely. View. Men part of that church, though, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. <laughs> There's your marketing. Um, rather, speaking the truth in love are to grow up in every way, in every way, unto him who is the head, into Christ. 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, not highlighting myself, I know my role, okay, I do what I can to perform it, for better or for worse. I've had some really worse seasons in my life, but that said, if, if God puts a, a word of prophecy on your heart and you don't speak it, God puts a song on your heart and you don't sing it, God tugs on your heart and you fist your wallet and don't put anything in, the church isn't working. It's still deficient. It won't grow. The teacher can teach his heart out, and if the people are tight-fisted, the church doesn't grow. If the people don't share their faith, the church doesn't grow. If the people don't have a heart of mercy toward the orphan and the window, widow, the church doesn't grow. It takes, a, it takes every joint to supply. Can you get by with one arm? Sure. You can get by. Tying your shoes is a real pain. True. You know, and then you wind up loafing around. I'm not going to run with that one. <laughs> anyway. Alright. So. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Any teaching that turns us from the grace and love of God is to be considered strange. Having, having been in a, in a system similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, we were trained for it. Um, I, I expended a great amount of my youth and energy submitting to the training. I was highly committed to the training. I was militant in the training. And how many do you know in church that will commit themselves to that degree to learn the truth? Merrill F. Unger, um, sometimes cited as probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, you know, writing Bible dictionaries. The, the biblical demonology book I have there on the shelf is by Merrill F. Unger. But he, he, in, in essence, he states that he believes that God allows the demonically driven false doctrine as a, um, as a point of judgment and illustration to the lackadaisical attitude of the lukewarm Christian. For instance, and it's going to sound like I'm harping on something I'm not, but the tithing ethic of the Mormon is something to be espoused. They, I mean, in terms of, in terms of how much that community gives. Now you can get in all kinds of discussions of how they, how they, how they run the system, just like the Catholic Church ran the system of tithes. But the point of it is, is that these these different, um, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses' um, commitment to evangelism puts most of the evangelical church to shame. Okay. It doesn't make what, how they're evangelizing correct, but anyhow. So, um, the grace component in, in, in Ephesians 4 is, are in the verses prior that I didn't read. And that's verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on to say, when he ascended, he gave. He gave these ministries. This is why I say that any kind of teaching that that turns the scope grace and truth came by Jesus Christ that turns the scope away from the grace and love of God 
to something else is strange. Period. Now, Hebrews 13.9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. This, this strengthened by, this is the heart strengthened by foods. The heart strengthened by a kosher diet. Because I am keeping kosher, because I am following the dietary laws, now my faith in God is established. The writer to the Hebrew congregation says it doesn't work. So are you saying this verse is basically grace versus religion? Is that what you're saying? Grace versus the law, yes. And in particular, not false religions or cult religions. This is the interactive, real living, grace, viable relationship with God versus the legalistic observance of the religion of our faith. And, and in, its, in its full exposition, a return to the temple system, per se, and to all the requirements of, of what we know of as orthodoxy in Judaism um, for the necessity of actually being holy before God. It doesn't work. Now, grace gets a bad rap. It becomes the straw man and arguments for legalism, even when people don't want to make them, and against licentiousness because... And, and this argument's been around ever since Paul was preaching and, and being stoned because he preached Christ crucified and he was preaching a gospel of grace in and, and, and a community committed to the temple. And, and it startled them, not because it was the temple, it startled them because man wants religion, because he's fallen. Okay? So grace gets this bad rap. Well, let me tell you a little bit about grace. Strengthened by grace. Vincent, the commentator, he... He calls grace the energetic principle that performs the saving operation of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace isn't an attitude that God expressed. You know, God had grace so you got saved. It's not an attitude God expressed and that got you in the door. Grace is active favor by God Almighty inside your heart to do the thing He designed you to do. It empowers what the blood of Jesus Christ saved you for. Saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? For we are created by His workmanship unto good works. Grace, um, the power to do what we ought to do. It's, it's not a past event solely. It's not an attitude expressed. You know, the king's golden scepter saying, okay, you can live now. It is the, it's the king's actual energizing of your right living, grace is. Okay? Can I, real quick? So, what this can really helped me was to understand. Strong defines grace in the, in the original Strong's is the divine influence upon the heart. You basically said that. What helped me understand was grace in the Greek is charis. Right? It's the same root of the word that we get, you know, the gifts, the tongues and the prophecy, you know, if that's charismata. Uh -huh. So when I understood that grace is the charis of the charismata, that means 
Grace is the gift, the impartation within me that enables me to do the godly thing that Amen. I, without grace, I cannot do anyway. Amen. It's a gift. Yep. Amen. That's it. It is a gift. And, and the, the power to do what I ought to do, that's the Bill Gothard definition of it. Oh, there you go. That's great. All right. Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells us that grace grants us access to God. Well, now you can see how grace strengthens the heart. If you're in front of God, you're going to be strengthened. Come boldly, therefore. Come boldly. How do I do that? Yeah, yeah. Can I do that in myself? Isaiah said, woe unto me. you got to do it in the grace. you got to do it through the blood. Well, you're really resonating, dude. <laughs> grace enriches us. Now, Amazing Grace is a beautiful song. It's a lovely song. Oftentimes, though, our attitude in singing Amazing Grace is... We're just this poor, impoverished thing. Yeah. And we leave it there. Yes, we were a poor, impoverished thing, but, but 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us that Christ became, by grace, Christ became poor that we might be rich. So we sing Amazing Grace because we were poor and blind. Let's turn grace into money. Amazing cash by which I pay my bills. My mortgage was on time and I bought a new car. I used to walk to work, but now I drive like a king. Do you think of grace that way? No. no. We, we think of... Hi, Denise. We think of grace as this attitude God expressed that we're just lucky to have had happen and yet amazing grace how sweet the sound that lets me preach the gospel by his grace I can love by his grace I can preach and by His grace, I can get up in the morn. Amen? Amen? Amen. we got to get through the cross, people. I'm pretty sure there's a place where um, the, the expression is used, the Spirit of Grace in, in the New Testament. So yes. it refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Grace. And it's helped me to think of Jesus as He's the harbinger of mercy. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the harbinger of grace. So I have Jesus and the Spirit. I have mercy and grace. Now, as a teacher, I have to point out that I had that bullet point, that the Holy Spirit was characterized by grace with that same verse that Abel just quoted. But for time's sake, I edited it, and Jesus brought it through Abel. And again, we did not discuss this teaching. That's your Lord at work. That's what I'm saying. That's Jesus at work. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you, Abel. Thank you for your humility. I mean... To be, to be the teacher and then be willing to let God do that. I mean, it's, it's so easy to just do what's on your bullets and keep rolling. Thank you. Praise God. Grace enriches us. Grace consoles us and gives us hope, Second Thessalonians 2.16 says. Grace consoles us. So, it's not just grace when I was lost. It's grace now when I'm sad. It's grace now when I'm lonely. It's grace now when I, I'm, I'm in need. It's grace now when I'm, you know, it's grace now. And it gives me hope. It doesn't leave me well. 
Well, he saved me when I was a sinner, and I'll just suffer through this stinking world until I go home. <laughs> no, I have hope of redemption, right? Hope, by the way, if you haven't noticed, is, is not a pessimistic thing, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a true optimistic thing. Um, I'll just make a short reference to this joke. It's Ronald Reagan's uh, difference between the optimist and the pessimist. And, you know, you know, both boys just got a messed up room, and anyhow, the, the optimist was like digging through all the stuff in his room. It, it, was, it was, you know, horse poo all in his room, and, and his brother said, what are you doing that for? He says, there's got to be a horse in here somewhere. There's got to be a pony in here. Yeah, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere, because he's an optimist, right? Okay. Grace calls us to an inward revelation of the Son of God. An inward revelation of the Son of God and to empower and empowers our witness. This is Galatians 1, 15 and 16. You know, by grace God called me to reveal His Son in me, Paul wrote. It's no, it's no less true for you, right? And in grace opens our eyes to the reality of the Son of God. So, you know, as a man who was trapped in, in the wrong doctrine of Unitarianism, and didn't really understand who the Son of God was, grace opened my eyes. When Jesus showed himself to me, it's a strange for someone who had been teaching the Bible as long as I had, but when I saw Jesus in Isaiah 6, I hit the deck. He had gotten, I mean, he'd been working on me for so long, and then I got, I was studying the book of Revelation, I was in my office, and, and, uh, and then I read Isaiah 6, and I saw the Son of God in Isaiah 6 and understood He didn't come to be when Mary said, I will. He'd been there all along. And I said, oh, God, forgive me. And I got on my face. And then my friend showed up because we were getting ready to do church visitations. And he came into my, Steve Senator, came into my office. He looked at me. He goes, what's wrong, brother? He said, I said, I just saw Jesus in, in Isaiah 6. He's, and we'd come out of the same system. He said, you did? I said, yeah, let me show you. And said, so we were both on the floor. By the grace of God, it was a revelation. Except that, here's the difference. I could repent with Jesus, the Son of God who saved me. I didn't have to say like Isaiah did and wait for an angel to give me a cold just to catch me through. Jesus said, I got you. Thank you, Lord. Right? So I didn't say, we didn't look at each other and go, well, we can't go out tonight now and minister to people. We just now had a you know, we just now repented from a major um, blinder. How can we go encourage people to show up to church? No, we went out there empowered, right? In our witness, and our testimony. Praise God, He is so good to us. Here's the thing, because this is the thing that always happens. Um, I say always happens. This frequently happens when someone starts preaching grace. A voice, usually inside of me, says, well... You can't just do that. People just cut loose, you know, do anything they want. Because, you know, grace, God will forgive you anyway, so you don't have to behave. Well, that's, that is not what grace is about. Grace isn't, doesn't do that at all. When that happens, that's someone preaching license and calling it grace. Now, Paul, I say this old argument because Paul confronted this when he wrote the Roman congregation. He said, so what shall we say then? Shall we sin? That grace might abound? God forbid. God forbid. No. It doesn't work that way. It's a false juxtaposition. It doesn't happen. You cannot increase grace by sin. Grace eradicates sin. 
That's the truth. To say that sinning might increase grace would be like, you know, forgiveness is good for my marriage, so I should commit more adultery so my <laughs> yeah, wife yeah. can forgive me and love me more. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? <laughs> what do you buy more say? Right? What do you say about that, girls? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. That's, that's a no-fly, right? Yeah. Not going to work. Yeah. Not going to work at all. Yeah. Far from promoting licentiousness, grace, grace trains our hearts, trains us to live holy lives. That's Titus 11. Titus 2, 11 through 14. You ready? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us. That's active. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains me to renounce that stuff and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. That's a true grace gospel. That's a full grace gospel. If grace is active in you, then your conscience is alive and you're actively pursuing good and eschewing evil. Live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. How, how could we take that grace, saved by grace, so we were redeemed from lawlessness. How can the thing that redeemed us from lawlessness encourage lawlessness? It can't. It's antithetical to the character of God. We just said grace is the character of the Holy Spirit. His, his impassioned encouragement and strengthening for you to do the will of God, which is what you were designed for at a cellular level. Every nerve of your being, everything God crafted in you, spirit, soul, and body, was crafted to resonate with doing His will. You're not fighting against type. You're going with the flow when you follow grace, the flow of God in your life. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who what? Are zealous for good works. You cannot do good works without grace. You cannot function properly. Because when you're not functioning out of grace, then you're trying to produce works out of your flesh and all they're going to produce is death. Sit. To the degree that I teach out of my intellect... And not through the grace of God is the degree that my words bring death and not life. Except for the mercy of God, which will allow the hearer to hear his word and he can carry out his purposes. But you understand? Things you do in your own strength burn you out. Things you do through the love of God build you up. I, it's, I tell you, I've run the course. I know what I'm talking about. I've been burnt out, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Came out on the other side. Amen. Amen. We have an altar from which to eat. Now, the two sacrifices, or the actual the type of sacrifice, not the two sacrifices, but the type of sacrifice in view in this verse is the peace offering, also called the thank offering. 
There are various types of these uh, involved with vows and other things, but basically a thank offering in the temple system, uh, the person would bring it as an offering of thanks to God, the priests would get their portion, the people would get their portion, and then they would all have a feast with God, right? So it was a sacrifice you ate. You gave and you got to eat from it. As opposed to a sin offering that got burnt up, and as opposed to a burnt offering, which by very nature of its name tells you it got, well, burnt up. And, and the structure of how uh, you walk through the temple is a sin offering, uh, and then a thank offering, and then a, a burnt offering. But here in the closing of Hebrews, the writer is kind of reversing the order, and he starts talking about the thank offering, and then he starts talking about the burnt offering, which is praise, offering of praise, right? Um, and, and couched or, or, or ensconced in the middle of that is the sin offering of Jesus Christ, which, God willing, we'll go into next week. But we have an altar from which to eat. Here's the thing you need to know. Something placed on God's altar from which we are sustained physically. And now we need to look at this analogy that's being used, this, this language that's being used. This is uh, Hebrews 13.9 out of the Amplified. Do not be carried about by different and varied and alien teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established and ennobled and strengthened by means of grace, God's favor and spiritual blessing and not to be devoted to foods, rules of diet, ritualistic meals, which bring no spiritual benefit or profit to those who observe them. Okay? So let's look at some comparisons and contrasts here. Grace here is compared with food, and each of these share the characteristic of giving energy or strength. You know, if you haven't eaten for a while, your body gets weak. Why? It needs the food to sustain life, just like your spirit needs grace to sustain its life. So in this way, the food is similar. Okay? The inward confirmation of grace, however, is contrasted with the outward conformance of dietary legal observance. I feel right because I did right and look right but it's not touching the heart. You, can't, you cannot rule and reg your way into holiness. You have to be transformed by the spiritual blessing and energy of God into holiness, which is then expressed. We always, try, we always get this flipped. Holiness, holy, isn't something God does. It's what He is. And so what you are then drives what you do. If I am a mean person, I will do mean things. If I'm doing mean things, I'm not mean because I'm doing mean things. I'm doing mean things because I'm mean. You understand? Does that make sense? So God says take your shoes off because it's holy ground. My presence has characterized this place. It... it it requires certain actions and activities. I, I, didn't sh I didn't clean the ground first and put a marker around it and then did a whole bunch of things that said, here's a special sacred border. Now, before you come in, take your shoes off. No, I showed up 
Ergo, the place is sanctified. You need to be careful here, because by nature of who I am and my expression, you can get fried if you walk in here on something other than the feet I made for you. Make sense? So when God's grace comes into my heart, He makes me like Him, holy. And because I am holy, I can behave in a godly fashion. When I do godly things without holiness, all I'm doing is conforming an outward performance. Nothing's happening in here, and it's not engendering life out there. That's the reality of it. We need to live out of identity, the identity of the Son of God that grace reveals to us in our hearts, and act accordingly. Um, I heard a prophet teaching one time, he was talking about, you know, his, his, his experience in witnessing, doing one-on-one witnessing, and, and um, you know, this person confessed their sin, and he says, well, why are you doing that? You're not that person anymore. You know, how many counseling sessions do you read of Jesus in the Gospels? The woman caught in adultery. What did, what did he do? Hey, you know, I think you need to go to a reparations class and think about maybe the insecurities in your life that led you to seek the comfort of another man. Um, and, you know, maybe I've got a minister down the street. You can go to three weeks to four weeks of counseling. And the, What do you say? Sin no more. I forgive you. Sin no more. It can't be that simple. It is. <laughs> we just want to complicate it. Sin no more. Okay. So stop sinning. Oh. Wow. What a revelation. <laughs> Inward confirmation of grace is contrasted with the outward conformance of dietary legal observance. So, Consuming Grace is the title of this message, but you can read it two different ways, and I intend you to. This is the first way. Consuming Grace. Consuming Grace is eating it like our daily bread. For we have an altar from which to eat. To actively, consciously press into the grace energy of God resonating in your heart to do the godly good work He called you to do. Eat it every day. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh dear God, what is our daily bread? John 6, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Let me stop right there. Because if you think you know what this means, you're not talking to Jesus. Because I'm telling you that men and women who spoke His same language when He walked on earth grew up in the same culture. They did not have a time gap in understanding. They did not have a cultural gap in understanding. They did not have a language barrier in their understanding. When He spoke these very clear words, many people stopped following Him and said, that's too hard. And he wouldn't let him off the hook. He said, no, you have to eat me. Yeah, and so, okay, well, you mean to tell me they couldn't, you know, just decide figuratively that what he meant was to really assimilate his teaching and do what he's doing and just, like, you know, get in the groove? 
Yeah, well that's what I'm saying is you're just not hearing it all the way through because if it's not challenging you on some level, and I don't think you, I, because we're not there, we can't hear the attitude with which it was said. These are startling words. Here's the other complication is, the new covenant was bread and wine. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. The remission of sins. How challenging is it for an entire culture whose basis of dietary food is to not eat the blood? That the blood was given on the altar for the atonement of sins. That if you kill an animal, you've got to bury that blood. If you eat that blood, you are excommunicated from the covenant community. <laughs> I'm the bread from heaven. I would not be telling you the whole truth if I didn't tell you I've been praying on this verse all week. And what I want to say is that it's all, it, it's all about the internalizing. And we know that in our head. See, if we're not walking with the Holy Spirit in a, in a communion and an acknowledgement, then we're just doing our own thing. And we're just doing the conforming. But if we are really trying to be obedient to the hearing and the following, then, then it's not going to be according to our own way. When we, when, not only did God send the Holy Spirit to, through Jesus to us to be internalized, to seal, to impart grace, to give gifts, to help us in our daily walk. But Jesus is saying, you internalize me. I have had a really hard time, and this part of this is a confession, because I've been really angry with God and Jesus for the last year and a half. You know, but when I finally come to the place um, of, I went out and actually got some, somebody mentioned the communion thing to me, and I said, now I'm going to get some bread and juice, and I did that for a few days. You know, But the thing is, is that, I don't really necessarily need the bread and juice, but now in, as I come to Jesus, I'm like, thank you for your body broken. Thank you for your blood poured out. And what I realize when I do that is that, one, I am internalizing him in a way that I can't do any other way. I, that's what it's all about. It's like he wants to take me in you. Take me in you. But more than that, what I realized, as a person who was coming from a place of anger with him over all the problems of my life, I realized how thrilled he is at that. You know why? Yes. You know what it costs him in a broken body? Do you know what it costs him in blood? When you give him thanks for that, you are thanking him for the most expensive costly, painful, wretched thing he ever purchased. It's like saying, thank you for all that you spent on me and sorry for ignoring that. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Good word, Abel. Good word. The, the sin sacrifice wasn't eaten and yet he is the sin sacrifice. And he's saying, eat it. The life of the flesh is in the blood. He's saying, take the flesh and the blood. I just, you know, anytime you're reading the Gospels and, and the, the disciples are scratching their head, I just encourage everybody to scratch your head. <laughs> and just ask Jesus, am I really getting it? Because for me, most of my life in reading the Gospels has been, those poor disciples, don't they get it? Like, I, like I'm the third person narrator who has the God view. And Jesus is saying, 
You don't get it, son. They didn't get it. I don't think you're getting it either. That's why I put it in there, because you need to ask me what it's about. So, uh, this is brand new for me. Just came like three minutes ago. Life of the flesh is in the blood. That's not the new part. Jesus' blood is in his body right now. Yes. He forever welded himself to human form. But he's saying, look, the thing that empowered me needs to empower you. The life that was in my body needs to be the life that's in your body. And how I lived with that life, my flesh, what I did with it, you need to do. You need to drink my blood and eat my, eat my food, eat my, eat my body. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Give us this day our daily bread. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate and died. We're not talking about physical sustenance. The whole point of, of, of 40 years of manna was that man should learn that, that he doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus is the Word incarnate. But it's not just the Word, it's the Word incarnate. You understand? The Word incarnate. The Word came and was written on a page. I spent a lot of years idolizing the page. I was a bibliophile. I worshipped the Bible. Okay? Well, the words on the page are helpful, but that's not the Word Word. The Word Word is Jesus. And the Word made flesh was, in, was a living Word. The Spirit of the everlasting Son of God empowered the living expression and flesh of the absolute will of God and perfection. Live it. Eat it. Drink it. Be it. Abide in me. And live forever. This is the bread. You eat this bread, you live forever. Consuming grace. Consuming grace. Not just accessing grace every time I sin and have to go to the foot of the cross again, but consuming it when I have to give, when I, when I got to get up and go to work in the morning, when I have to have an interaction with my children, when I'm working with my wife, when I'm, when I'm endeavoring to be humble, when I'm going to the grocery store, when I'm studying the scripture, consuming. When you're waiting at the grocery store and somebody's do doodling ahead yeah. of you and you're getting upset. Yeah, consuming <laughs> grace, consume it. Lord Jesus, the power that powered you, the life you expressed, I want to be. If any person feels a lack of connection with Jesus, I would, I would say, if you, every time you sit to pray, if you will first give thanks for his body broken for you and his blood poured out for you, if you will do that, you, you won't be able to look at him the same way, and that connection will begin to, to be strengthened. I would encourage you that. Amen. See, no greater love has, a, has someone who, except that he give his life for his friend. Because when we acknowledge someone's love toward us, that he gave his life for us, how prone are you going to be believed that Jesus is going to be just giving you short shrift, stiff-arming you because you can't get over yourself? He gave his life for you. You think he's going to hold anything back? No. If you're reminded he, he of how... Loves, he... 
we got to know that, that Jesus loves us in spite of ourselves. Amen. Amen. Here's another common parlance, okay? It's my word of the day. Parlance is French. You are what you eat. Now, what comes next, I probably got from a TV show, but I think it's true. This is the common phrase. You are what you eat. Well, you know, you are what you eat. Right? Chocolate bar? But yeah, you know, the thought being is that if you, you know, if you eat crummy, uh, you, your body's crummy. If you eat well, then maybe your body's well. But that's the, that's the impetus of it, right? But it's not the full truth. You aren't what you eat. It's just not. You are, however, what you metabolize. You are what you metabolize. So you can eat a whole bunch, but if you're not metabolizing it, it doesn't become part of you. When you eat, well, metabolism. If there was any doubt about you being a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> this, this I got from that, that authoritative reference source, Wikipedia. Metabolism. Well, I have a high metabolism. Now, I used to, that's what I used to say, you know, I have a high metabolism. Now I just say, I have a medically regulated metabolism and I must eat <laughs> five times a day because my metabolism is medically regulated. All right, metabolism. Metabolism is from the Greek metabole, and it means to change. Metabolism means to change. Hey, this is Wikipedia quoting the Greek. I've done this in my own slides teaching the Bible, just so you know, I'm not the only one. Metabole, to change. <coughs> Metabolism is the set of life-sustaining chemical reactions in organisms. So metabolism is that life-sustaining. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have a sustained life. Metabolism in the natural, first the natural, then the spiritual. It's how God trains us, how God teaches us. In the natural, metabolism is the set of life-sustaining chemical reactions in organisms. The three main purposes of metabolism are, one, the conversion of energy in food to energy available to run cellular processes. There's energy in Christ that you need to metabolize to energize your good work processes. You following me? The conversion of food to building blocks. It's good for the heart to be established or strengthened or built by grace. The conversion of food to building blocks for proteins, lipids, nucleic acids, and some carbohydrates. If, if you have a metabolic disease, diabetes is a type of metabolic disease, there are other types of metabolic diseases, if you can't metabolize lipids, you're going to have a neurological disorder, um, heart disease, all kinds of things happen when we do not metabolize. This is how food strengthens us. God engineered us to process things stored in food and convert them to things that are us. Right? So it sounds like modern science, but Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago basically said, Hey, I got things in me you need to eat and process so it becomes you. So it becomes you. So you become me. Amen? Finally, metabolism is the elimination of metabolic waste. When you metabolize, 
there's waste product that goes out. So in teaching about clean and unclean foods and, and teaching that it was more about Thanksgiving and heart and the fact that it's not what came into a man that made him dirty, but what came out of a man that defiled him, Jesus said, look, when you eat food, you poop it out and it goes in the gutter. That's kind of the language he used. It sounds all fancy in the King James, but that's what he said. So that when you metabolize Christ, the waste of unholiness in your life goes out into the sewer. Praise God. Praise God. Right? So you are continually renewed and cleansed and made, made like Jesus. Isn't that good? Yeah. So that is consuming grace, eating grace, metabolizing grace. But there's another nuance to consuming grace. That grace itself is consuming. See, if we don't metabolize it, it does nothing for us. Matter of fact, in food, if you don't metabolize it, it can actually harm you. Consuming grace, not as in um, eating grace like we just talked about, but grace that consumes us. Consuming grace is the grace that infuses our lives to the degree that it becomes our identity. That grace infuses our lives to the degree that when we view ourselves, we view ourselves in the window of what grace has made us, not what it saved us from. You understand? It's not that we forget where we came from, it's that we identify with what grace has turned us into. Let me show you this dramatic example from the life of Saul of Tarsus, Christian murderer. Apostle called out and sent by God, we call Paul. Gotta hit the right button. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, but, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not what I was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not a church persecutor. Not a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Not a Christ torturer. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. I didn't say, no, God. I, he did say, hey, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. But he didn't stop there. So often people stop there. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm qualified to teach. I don't know if I'm, I'm worthy to, to you know, lead a small group. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm qualified to lead anybody in a song of praise. I don't, I don't know if I'm qualified to... How can, I, how can I witness Jesus Christ to my friend at work when they know I'm going through a divorce? How, how, can, how can I do that? He didn't do that. He didn't say, well, you know... Hey, Holy, they're in this meeting, right, in, in, in Antioch, Assyria, and the Holy Spirit says, Hey, Paul, Silas, I, want, I mean, Saul and, and Barnabas, I want those two guys right now. And, and Saul says, Look, guys, I really appreciate it, but not this guy. You guys know how it went. I mean, it's been 14 years, but people have long memories. I used to break into houses, pull people out, put them in prison, torture them to death, make them deny Christ. Not me. 
I'm not qualified, not worthy, can't do it. The grace of God saved me. Thank you very much. I'm fine where I'm at. So let me teach you this little school. Didn't do that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And I didn't receive this grace in vain. I ran with it. I vibrated with it. I resonated with it. I did the very thing God called me to do. On the contrary, I worked harder than them all. But look how he worked. Oh, I have contacts. I have people. I know what to do. I, I was trained. I'm a lawyer. I know the law. I got, you know, I could do it. I could work it. I can man. It's all dumb. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Not me. Not me. I worked with the grace that is with me. Now, I just want to testify or even ask, particularly those of you who know me for many years, have you ever wondered how in the world it is that I do this every week just about? I was wondering that today. No? Huh? No? I no? Know. You know how, right? Yeah, I know. I've and known you for how many years? You know, you know me yeah. for at least 30? At least 30 years, so more than half my life. Um, it's not because I'm physically capable because I've done this exhausted. It's not because I'm healthy because I've done this when I didn't have a voice. It's not because I'm, I am holy because I've done this when I've been in sin. It's not because I'm knowledgeable because I've done this when I was ignorant. Tenant, because the Lord helped you. Because the Lord. Because I endeavor to do it in the grace. In the grace. And so... I walk away from this thing, and I hope you do as well, strengthened and encouraged. Not that it doesn't cost me energy, it does. Not that it doesn't cost me commitment, it does. Not that it doesn't cost study, it does. But it doesn't happen that way. It happens because Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gives me grace to feed bread to his loved ones. Amen. Someplace in the Word it says that God will be a co-laborer with you. That's right. <laughs> Consuming grace is the grace that infuses our lives. Grace is so, so, so consumed your personality and your view of life that it becomes your identity. My identity, right? This is what he says. I am what I am by the grace of God. This is who I am. I am characterized by what God's grace has done in my life. So here's a, here's a little test module for you, okay? Our confirmation in grace is measured by how much we identify with the Savior and His work in us versus our sins and the destruction they cause. How do you identify? I am a fill-in-the-blank, alcoholic, uh, whatever. You know, what is your pet project of brokenness? Is that your identity? Because it should not be. No, so, I'm comfortable in my skin because... Because, because of, of who He's made you. Yeah. Amen. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace in me I did not receive in vain. I worked harder than them all. But not me. The grace of God working in me. Amen? <laughs> Hebrews 13, 9 and 10. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
It's our banquet. Let's make sure we eat it. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you, church. Man. Thank you. God bless you. Hallelujah.